2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpa The U.S. war in Afghanistan lasted nearly two decades, but next month, troops will formally withdraw, ending the longest war in our country's history. But how many conflicts have there been since 2001? Should presidents be able to move forward without congressional approval? Today, where we live, we'll talk to Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy about his bipartisan bill to take Congress's power to authorize war back from the executive branch. We'll also talk about issues happening in our state and take your calls, too. What questions do you have for Senator Chris Murphy? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also share a comment or question on our Facebook page find us on Twitter at where we live. Coming up, we'll get analysis from University of Hartford Political Science Professor Bilal Siku. But welcoming back to the show on Zoom is Senator Chris Murphy. Hi, Senator. How are you doing today?
1: I'm well. Good morning. Thanks for having me back.
2: So you're in D.C., so let's start there. Some big items that Congress is expected to take up before the August recess. Let's talk about infrastructure. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had planned an early test vote on a a smaller bipartisan infrastructure bill today, I believe. But we know Republicans want to wait until they have a text of the bill. There's also a review by the Congressional Budget Office. There's another expensive infrastructure bill put together by Democrats waiting in the wings. So what can you tell us about what's happening in the senate today related to something that many people are watching
1: what i can tell you is um, that um, uh, people i talk to in connecticut are at their wits end um uh, e- economically and politically as well folks um, you know right now you know just don't have the money to make ends meet people are working full time um they barely can pay their bills they certainly don't have enough money to save for retirement and save for their kids college. And then they, you know, look at news from yesterday with another billionaire going into space. Um, and they have a feeling that, you know, that this country's priorities are just out of whack, that people are, you know, being now forced to work 60, 80 hours a week in order to, you know, earn a living wage. Well, this, cabal of billionaires and millionaires seem to be getting richer and richer even through the pandemic and so you know what we need to do is to you know go beyond incremental fixes we've got to deliver real hope and real economic salvation to ordinary americans uh that's what we're trying to do between these two bills um we're trying to pass a physical infrastructure bill that's going to You know, dramatically cut down on the amount of time that it takes for people to make their commute that, you know, dramatically changes the amount of time, for instance, it takes to get from Hartford and New Haven into New York City. That'll attract a lot of businesses to Connecticut. It'll give people a lot more flexibility um, about where they live um, if they have to commute um, uh, a long ways to work. But then we also recognize that we need to build human infrastructure we in order to you know help people out we've got to give them support for their childcare costs we've got to um, help them with the cost of taking care of elderly parents we've got to support them with tax cuts that go to middle income and low income families instead of to millionaires and billionaires and so it is true that the cost of these two bills is you know, pretty um, expensive. We're talking about uh, $4 trillion um, between these two packages, but the intent is to pay for it. The intent is not to borrow and deficit finance it. It's to ask those that are, you know, making those big salaries, the, the folks that are doing very well to pay a little bit more um, and to use that money uh, to be able to finance support for regular hardworking families in Connecticut and all across the country. You're right that it's not gonna be easy, especially in a 50-50 Senate to get it done. But you know, I think Joe Biden realizes that this is not a moment to go small. This is a moment to show the American people that we can do something significant um, to help average everyday working families.
2: Mm-hmm. You talked about physical infrastructure and then human infrastructure. So what are some of your priorities that you want to see get um, put into this bill and stay there while while we hear if there'll be a compromise or not? Uh,
1: One of my chief priorities when it comes to physical infrastructure is uh, rail infrastructure. I really think that the future of Connecticut's economy is dependent on our ability to get people really quickly um, uh, on the rail line, from uh, Hartford, in New Haven, down in New York, or over to Boston. Right now, if you're in New Haven, which is a growing economy, um, a lot of tech companies coming to the greater New Haven area, it, it takes you an hour and 50 minutes to get by train into the city. That's longer than it took back in 1950. We have a plan um, to invest in that line, um, along with Governor Lamont, to cut down that time from an hour and 50 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes. Think about how transformational it would be for Connecticut's economy. If all of a sudden you could get from New Haven to New York in just over an hour. Um, we need significantly more money for rail than is in the bipartisan infrastructure bill to get that done. But Senator Blumenthal and I are fighting very hard for that. On the human infrastructure side, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces that matter to me, um, but I, I, you know, as a, as a parent of young kids know how expensive it is to have kids in Connecticut. And so support for child care and the extension of the child tax credit, which is putting about a thousand dollars more in income into low and middle income families with kids every year is really important to me. Um, I, I want to support everybody in Connecticut, um, but I particularly know how expensive it is to raise a family. Uh, and so making child care more affordable and getting tax cuts to families with young kids, uh, that's really important.
2: You can join our conversation with US Senator Chris Murphy here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Johanna's calling in from West Hartford. We were just talking about infrastructure. Uh, Johanna, go ahead with your question.
0: Hi, good morning. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for taking my call and and good morning, Senator Murphy. I work in community gun violence reduction in the city of Hartford on hospital-based violence intervention methods. And I know that the original infrastructure bill had money set aside specifically for violence intervention, uh, community gun violence intervention specifically. Senator, can you speak to how that money um, could remain whole in these new iterations of the bill?
1: It's uh, a really important priority for me. uh, you know, as you know, I work really hard to change the country's gun laws uh, right now. I'm still negotiating with Republicans in the Senate an expansion of uh, the background checks law so that we make sure that more gun sales go through background checks. So many of the guns that get used in Hartford uh, are illegal guns, guns that were, you know, bought uh, through loopholes in the background check system in states with looser gun laws than Connecticut, that get trafficked to Connecticut and sold into the, um, uh, into the illegal market in our state. But as you point out, um, changes in gun laws will only get you so far. Uh, you, you have to sort of deal with the fact that you have, um, young people in places like Hartford and New Haven and Bridgeport whose, uh, whose lives, um, in their minds have become, um, sort of hopeless and you need to give them Sort of a, a pathway to prosperity um, other than um, one through violence. And, and so these community-based interventions, wrapping services, supports, educational programs, job training programs around at-risk youth and at-risk young adults, they, they pay dividends. And you obviously know that because you work in the field. So um, I've made it clear that I, I want this funding to either be in the big Human infrastructure package or into the annual budget. Uh, I'm the, I'm a member of the appropriations committee. I just took over the chairmanship of the Homeland Security subcommittee. So I write the budget for the Department of Homeland Security now. Uh, and um, I, I may, you know, try to find a way to uh, get some additional funding for anti violence programs um, into the appropriations bill. Um, hopefully it will also be in the infrastructure bill, but we want to make sure that we have an annual source of support for programs like yours that, you know, do give young people a pathway uh, to success um, that allows them to uh, avoid the traps of violence. <laughs>
2: When we talk about gun violence, uh, we often hear from policymakers and people in the community about the importance of investing in these types of programs and giving people a path uh, um, away from some of the trauma that they live with each and every day and supporting young people. But you also gave a speech on the floor of the Senate last week where you're talking about the nation's gun laws, how they have contributed to the spike that we're seeing across the country. Can you talk more about that, Senator?
1: Yeah. you know, you know, I wrote a book a year ago uh, on the epidemic of violence in America. The conclusion I came to in that book is that uh, changing gun laws is the fastest way, the quickest way to get a reduction in rates of gun violence. But um, American violence is uh, very much about poverty and very much about race. Um, and so if you don't tackle systemic racism and if you don't give people um, uh, a, a path out of poverty, Um, there's a limit to the reduction of violence you get from changes in gun laws. That's why this infrastructure package is going to be so critical when it comes to violence rates. The child tax credit will have an impact on violence rates because what we see over time is that uh, the more people are rescued from poverty, the less likely they are to be a victim or or perpetrator of gun violence. But it is not a coincidence that in 2020, we saw a forty percent increase in gun sales across this country, uh, and a thirty percent increase in homicide. Studies show that in a community where gun sales go up by one percent, violent crime goes up by one percent as well. Um, I always think about a a, a, a a murder, a gun murder in Hartford that uh, happened right around the corner from where I live, um, a couple months before Sandy Hook. Uh, it was um an argument um over uh over a, a girl it was a, uh, some rude things said about one individual's girlfriend um some words were exchanged there was perhaps a push or a shove there happened to be an illegal gun sitting in the front seat of one of these kids cars um one young man went for that gun took it out um and somebody was dead Um, somebody's child was dead at the end of that argument over um, some untoward things said about one individual's girlfriend. In any other society, that argument doesn't turn deadly because in any other society, there isn't that easy access to a firearm. So controlling the number of weapons that are in our cities by making sure that we have fewer guns being trafficked by criminals, that has a big impact. We're gonna try to expand out the background checks system this year um, is probably going to slip to the fall in terms of when we take a vote on this. But we're still hopeful we can get that done.
2: Let's talk about the filibuster, because that often is what happens with uh, gun control legislation. We saw it happen with the voting rights bill. The GOP blocked that. Do you agree with getting rid of this? Uh, I know you've used it in the past yourself.
1: Yeah, I um, do think that it's time to at least reform the filibuster um you know it's interesting the filibuster gets used to describe two different things um it gets the it, it's used to describe what i did in 2016. In 2016 i stood on the senate floor for 15 hours and talked and talked and talked and talked demanding that we take votes on um gun measures uh i was successful in order to get me to shut up the then Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did agree to those votes. That's kind of an old fashioned filibuster. But the filibuster also refers to this rule we have in the Senate where you can't advance any bill without 60 votes. You don't actually have to talk for one minute um, in order to, to stop a bill from advancing. All you have to do is find 40 members of the Senate Uh, who will refuse to advance a bill to a final vote, uh, and that bill can't pass. So that's what happens to gun legislation. We have over 50 members of the Senate. We have a majority of the Senate that supports universal background checks, but we don't have 60 votes in the Senate. Um, So I just, I'm sick to my stomach that so much popular legislation, like universal background checks, is stopped in the Senate because a minority of senators use that rule in order to stand in the way of progress. So I'd like to see, at the very least, the filibuster be reformed so that you have to actually stand up and talk. Uh, make people do what I did. Make people stand up on a Senate floor and talk and talk and talk and talk to try to stop a bill from, from becoming law. Because I think if they had to do that, um, there'd be less filibusters. I was confident in filibustering for 15 hours on background checks because 90% of the American people support me. Would the side that only has 10 percent of the American public support them actually stand up on the floor for hours or days at end to stop a, pop, a popular piece of legislation? I don't think so. Um, so that's one reform that some of us are taking a look at.
2: If it, the filibuster were to go away, would this come back to haunt Democrats the next time you know Republicans uh, have the majority?
1: Well, I believe in democracy, uh, even when the vote doesn't turn out the way I would like. So I just don't believe that I should rig the rules of the Senate so that the majority of Americans don't get their way after an election. In 2020, Americans decided that they wanted Democrats in charge, of the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. And they were really deliberate in that choice. Um, I think that when the voters make that choice, that the party they put in power should have a chance to govern. Conversely, if voters think that Republicans should be in charge of the White House, the Senate and the House of Representatives, I think that that party should get a chance to enact their agenda. So, yeah, there's certainly a, a risk in removing the filibuster um, if and when I find myself in the minority again, and I'm sure I will during my time in public service. But I think that's democracy. And I think that you have to accept the good and the bad <laughs> when you're one political persuasion uh, if you really do believe in giving the power of choice to the voters.
2: Again, you're hearing U.S. Senator Chris Murphy here on Where We Live. If you have a question for him, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Uh, Dawn is calling in from Meriden. Don, go ahead.
0: Yes, good morning, uh, Lucy. Love your show. And Senator Murphy, um, again, thank you for uh, for taking my call. And Senator Murphy, I'm I'm happy to be able to talk with you because I send in letters, but we we get kind of like a, a template response, and I like this personable exchange, you know, about Jeff Bezos and going to the uh, up to space. You know, I, I'm a Democrat. I tend to be um, along a liberal line most of the time, um, and I have to say that I admit, you know, I've contributed to to making this man what he is. You know, I mean, our our culture in this in this country we tend to um feel or label like victims you know i don't i don't feel i'm a victim to what he's become because i've contributed to it and i know a lot of people in my life have too you know where we don't think of the the environment there's been a huge a huge cost to what we've um how we've contributed to to Bezos and who he's become and you know the the power that he has and it saddens me because I think what we need to do to to be empowered citizens is to learn about, you know, what's going on out west with Oregon fires and how we're contributing to that. So we can pull it into our lives daily and let it affect our decisions because rather than, well, how do we get more money now? Because, you know, we're at a disadvantage. And I mean, we've contributed to this and um, it saddens me. It's just a cycle that goes on and on and on. Thank
2: you, Don. So Senator Murphy, uh, she's talking about how uh, the, the American people have helped create billionaires like Jeff Bezos and what our responsibility is.
1: Uh, and listen, I, I shop on Amazon, right? Like, I, I mean, I, 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 I am, am attracted to the low prices that come from you know, these um, massive purchasing operations, whether it be Amazon or Target or Walmart. Um, and I agree that we should all be smarter in our decision making. I, you know, I'll always try to shop at, you know, local merchants and buy products made in Connecticut or made in the United States, but, but I don't always do that. It's sometimes I need something fast and sometimes the price differential is so big that I'll, you know, buy it on Amazon. So I'm in the same place you are. Um, I, I, I just think that, you know, right now, given the fact that wages have remained essentially flat for 20 years um, compared to costs most consumers you know don't have really any choice other than to buy the lowest priced good um, that's why walmart's continue to expand all across the country um, and, and so if we want to put consumers in a position where they can be more discriminating, where they can make the choices you're talking about right to, um, in empower socially responsible companies to spend their money in small businesses, um, then we actually have to put money in their pockets. Um, and, and we haven't been doing that for uh, 20 years. It, it, it's, it's only been the richest of the rich who have been increasing their wealth and their purchasing power. And that's why this human infrastructure bill that we're talking about is so important. I mean, what if um, everybody in this country had a cap on how much they pay out of pocket in healthcare. That's what this bill is going to do. Say no more than 8.5% of your income is going to go to healthcare premiums. What if we made permanent the child tax credit so that every year you have $1,000 more coming into your family for every child in your household? What if um, your child care expenses got cut by 20%? Uh, um, that money that got put in your pocket would allow you to make different purchasing decisions. Maybe families wouldn't have to always buy the lowest price good every time. And they could think more about the environmental impact of the choices they're making. But that luxury doesn't exist for most families that I talk to in Connecticut. And so, um, uh, that's why I think this is, this is really a moment to, to put some money into the hands of average Americans and, and they'll make good choices with that money. And those choices will have you know, big sweeping effects on the economy. Maybe one of them will be uh, that um, more businesses ultimately are benefited rather than just a handful that seem to reap the rewards in turn. current economy.
2: Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is our guest here on Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. If you have a question, join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
0: This is where we
2: live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest is Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. He's a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Just yesterday, you stood with your colleagues, uh, Senator Sanders and Mike Lee, to talk about this bill to uh, bring back some authority to Congress when it comes to uh, starting war. Can you talk more about uh, this proposal, Senator?
1: Maybe the most serious responsibility we have as members of Congress is to decide the circumstances upon which um, American men and women go to war. Um, And and I take that responsibility very seriously, but I am pained by the decision made both by the executive branch and the legislative branch over the past several decades uh, to essentially outsource decisions um, about war and peace to the White House. Um, It's been a really long time since Congress has debated uh, a war authorization, and yet there are American combat troops in nearly a dozen countries today, um, many of them fighting on behalf of the United States in conflicts that the American people really know nothing about because we didn't have a debate here in Congress. The most famous uh, of, of these conflicts is the Vietnam War, in which we lost tens of thousands of Americans without any debate in Congress. More recently, we fought a war in Yemen, um, which didn't take American lives, but ultimately resulted in um, uh, hundreds of thousands of Yemenis uh, perishing, um, never debated in the United States Congress, huge consequences. So um, I put together a pretty unlikely coalition, uh, myself, Uh, Senator Mike Lee um, of Utah, very conservative senator, uh, and Bernie Sanders. uh, The three of us introduced yesterday a sweeping reform uh, to the laws that govern presidential national security powers. Uh, What we propose is that um, Congress take back the power to declare war, um, that um, Congress get much more involved in the decision about arms sales, that um, approve arms sales instead of, um, only having the power to disapprove arms sales. Uh, and that the presidential national emergency powers, which have become really big and sweeping, I think 39 current national emergencies. Some of them are still open from the 1970s. Uh, we propose that Congress get in the business of approving those again, rather than just having the power to disapprove. Um, this would make a lot more work for Congress. Uh, it would get us a lot more involved in foreign policy and national security. But, um, when Congress isn't involved and the American public don't get to debate these issues, big mistakes get made, like the Vietnam War, like the Yemen war. Uh, and, uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll be able to grow support for this proposal on both sides of the aisle.
2: So to recap, uh, this proposal wouldn't encumber the president's constitutional powers to defend the country, but there'd be more coordination between the executive and legislative branches, Senator.
1: The president always has the has the power to take short-term action in defense of the nation. But if it's not to prevent an imminent attack or to respond to an attack against the United States, the Constitution is pretty clear. He, he has to come to Congress. For authorization. Um, and so I'll give you an, an example. Um, when President Obama decided to make war against ISIS, I don't think there would have been a, a I don't think there would have been a lot of objections to that from the American public or from Congress. But I argued at the time that he didn't have the legal ability to do that without coming to Congress. Um, and, and so Um, In that instance, you know, it wasn't in response to an attack. It wasn't to prevent an imminent attack. It it was just our belief that in Iraq and Syria, we were much better off if uh, ISIS didn't control vast swaths of territory. But the founders thought that you shouldn't engage the American armed forces in a war of that significance. And we lost soldiers in that war um, without the American public weighing in. In that case, I think we probably would have, authorized that engagement but we might have done so with some limitations we might have done so you know with a sunset provision in it um that i think is the requirement um that the constitution provides and uh, democratic and Republican presidents have in my mind you know violated that provision of the constitution
2: are you getting any indication from the white house whether president biden's going to sign a bill that would limit his authority senator
1: So it's very, um, uh, very unlikely that a president will voluntarily sign a bill that (laughs) limits their authorities. At the same time, um, Senator Lee made a good point yesterday in our press conference, you know, he said, uh, maybe the president should be interested in sharing responsibility with Congress for making these often very controversial decisions. Um, You know, when when President Obama decided to bomb Libya, Um, Congress sort of didn't know what to think about that. We saw the potential for that to go very wrong, and it did go very wrong. Libya is still a disaster mired in civil war today. And so Congress just sort of kept its hands off. President Obama went forward with that military campaign. Again, I'd argue he probably didn't have the legal ability to do that. Um, But he took a lot of heat for what ended up happening in Libya, which was a disastrous civil war, in the rise of ISIS in Libya, you know, maybe the executive branch would be better off if, you know, they didn't go into these kind of conflicts without sign-off from Congress, because then, at the very least, if things went wrong, um, they could sort of spread their responsibility. So, I, I uh, have not heard yet from the Biden administration um, what their feelings are on this legislation. I doubt they support it in its totality, but. I still think it's a really important um, debate to have, you know, in large part because Connecticut kids, you get sent to these wars. um, And my first, my primary responsibility is to protect this country and the group of individuals I think most about um, are Connecticut soldiers, um, are are the, the brave young people who are standing up to defend this country. I don't ever want them to be sent overseas to fight an unnecessary war and i think that we can best protect against that by making sure that congress stays involved in these decisions
2: let's take some calls with us senator chris murphy 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live kelly's calling in from middletown kelly what's your question
0: um yes good morning my question the child tax credit is designed to lift families out of poverty so i'm wondering what the reasoning is to lowering it by fifty dollars a month for children six and over, I realize that they're in school, but they still need childcare in the summer. And six and over kids uh, have increased clothing, technology, food, activity needs. And I, I just I'm I'm surprised that uh, that you all differentiate between. That. Senator, uh, it, it,
1: thanks. It's a great question. I guess you can look at it either way. Um, y- you suggest that the tax credit is lower for um, older kids. Um, I-, I would suggest we increased it for younger kids. Um, it's it's a good point. Um, you know, my kids now are nine and uh, twelve, and I recognize that those kids still come with pretty significant costs. Um, I-, I-, I I do remember though having very young kids um, and. Um young kids with the cost of formula and baby food and diapers and all the rest for very low-income families, those expenses really can uh break the bank. Um and the the, the risks of poverty in some ways are even more significant at those younger, very fragile years when your brain is being uh, hardwired. Um if, if you are the subject of neglect because of poverty. Um, at age three or four or five um, those effects researchers have found are irreversible so um, you know I, I think we you know we would love to do the $1,600 per year for every child I, I think we're trying to find a, a way to do something significant for all kids um, to target support to the youngest of kids who tend to have the biggest expenses uh, attached to them uh, and do it in a way that didn't fundamentally break the bank. This is still very expensive to, you know, give a $1,000, $1,600 annual tax break to um, you know, 70, 80% of families all across the country, but we thought this was the most uh, sort of uh, financially responsible way to do it, to target a little bit more support to the younger kids.
2: We were just talking about the National Security Powers Act. Uh, we just got a tweet. Someone wants to hear how you would define war today, Senator. Is it non-state actors? Is it cyber? What are the boundaries?
1: Uh, well, it's a it's a great question. Um, and today, the enemies we face are you know very hard to define, and that's in part why Congress has sort of stepped back and decided to. You know, play a lesser role when it comes to declaring war, um, because our, our enemies, you know, now are not necessarily nation states. They're these non-state actors that change their name. So if you were to define, you know, one non-state actor in a war authorization, um, and they were to change their name or they were to merge with another organization, um, that would require you in some cases to update the war authorization. Um, for a lot of members of Congress, that sounds like too much work. It doesn't for me. <laughs> I think that Congress should be so interested in fulfilling our constitutional responsibility to, to declare war, uh, that we should be willing to do the hard work to update war authorizations as the nature and the scope of, uh, the, uh, of the enemy changes. Um, the question that the, uh, that the post presents regarding, for instance, cyber warfare, um, I, I think that's another place where Congress needs to get more broadly involved because what's happening now is low-grade cyber warfare between the United States and other nations. Don't think that when we get attacked um, by another nation, we don't fight back. We do. But again, that happens without an authorization from Congress. And so far, we haven't seen a cyber conflict spin up into more traditional warfare but that day may happen um, and so i would argue that even when it comes to cyber conflict uh, congress should be involved congress should be passing authorizations um, in, in that case you know maybe it's not country specific but we should have a debate in congress about what critical infrastructure in other sovereign nations we are attacking as we speak um, and provide, at the very least, a blanket authorization for those activities. Um, We have been, again, reluctant to do it because we just as a body seem more interested in passing the blame and responsibility off to the executive branch.
2: Can we talk quickly about what we're seeing in both Haiti and Cuba and what should be the US role in both places, Senator?
1: Well, we're actively engaged in uh, Haiti right now. Uh, As you know, this tragic assassination of the country's leader has led to a um, contest for power. Uh, And so we are working with a a, a number of other nations uh, right now uh, to try to um, land the contest for the prime ministership. Um, Ariel Henry uh, seems to have the greatest amount of consensus within Haiti today. And so we are uh, working with the different political parties and factions to try to make sure that there is a stable government there in the long run. Uh, I have been very open to providing uh, security assistance. I wouldn't put troops on the ground in Haiti, but I do think that we should be looking at providing some level of uh, security assistance uh, in Haiti. uh, If they can make a commitment to us that they are going to uh, have a, a, a peaceful, organized transition of power to Ariel Henry. Uh, I think we should be willing to support that new government with some uh, with some security assistance. Um, clearly, Haiti is going to also continue to need investment and economic support, uh, and uh, I would be very willing to support increases in those accounts. Again, if the country's leadership is willing to put aside their differences and come up with a common plan for power transition. Um, in Cuba, one of the things I'm focused on right now is opening up the internet in Cuba, making sure that these protesters, these opposition groups have access to the outside world and can communicate with each other. Um, I get very frustrated when I listen to many of my Republican colleagues in Congress just argue for more of the same. Um, a lot of my Republican colleagues just go down to the floor of the Senate and say, continue the embargo." Um, continue to economically and politically isolate Cuba. Well, that hasn't worked for 50, 60 years. And well, I certainly would submit that the reason for Cuban's economic desperation is primarily because of a brutal regime. Uh, I also think that really bad U.S. policy, including the embargo, has had a lot to do with uh, the desperate economic situation in Cuba as well. And so uh, I don't think that this is a moment to um, double down on bad U.S. policy. Um, I think we should continue to uh, argue for a a gradual lifting of the embargo, but my focus more so is on finding ways to support this protest movement and allowing them the means to communicate with each other and talk to the outside world um, is probably the, the, the best thing that we can invest in.
2: Are we seeing the ramifications of the U.S. you know over the last two decades, our focus not being on Latin America and the Caribbean, dealing with terrorism overseas, and now seeing rivals like China and Russia uh, asserting their dominance there, and, and leading to uh, you know this instability, as you mentioned, our longtime sanctions and other decisions that the U.S. has made?
1: Well, a- absolutely. I mean, I have. I have been a leader in Congress and arguing to wind down the wars in the Middle East and, dramatic, and to dramatically reorient our foreign policy spending away from the military uh, and towards democracy aid, economic assistance. Um, we have been bogged down in these conflicts, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan. And that has allowed china to run circles around us to, to do economic development deals with countries in latin america with countries in africa um, that allow them to accrue all sorts of influence in places that really do matter to the united states uh, so i think this is a moment for us to really shift the way that we spend money um and to really look at the consequences of this massive anti-terrorism security state that we've built, um, we are much less nimble than we used to be. So, you know, in a place like Haiti, um, you know, we just can't even imagine the kind of economic security package that could win us a lot of allies there uh, and make sure that there's a country right on our periphery that doesn't become even more unstable and perhaps end up in large flows of migrants um coming to the United States looking for shelter. Uh that's just a consequence of the spending decisions we make here. Um we should we should change that balance of uh resources away from the military and towards more nimble national security tools.
2: One more caller, Bill and Waterbury. Bill go ahead with your question.
0: How's it going? Uh Senator Murphy, you say we should be taking money away from the military, but the National Guard alone this year is over $520 million in the red, which can, which the, some of people are saying are going to cause training delays uh, and have soldiers not train the rest of the year. How will that affect not only our national security, but our state security? Not to mention, uh, how are we going to... what's the plan to to get this fixed so that we can make sure that our soldiers and uh our airmen are are taken care of and getting the training that they need
1: well listen i'm a a a big supporter of the guard and the reserve at the same time um i'm frankly very uncomfortable with the level uh, of deployment that we have placed uh on both the reserve and the guard over the course of the war on terror. Um, I, I'm so proud of the job that our guard and our reserve forces do, but uh, when they were conceived, we never contemplated that they would be our primary fighting force. And yet, you know, everybody probably listening to this knows family or friends in the guard and reserve who have been deployed, three, four, five times um, to Iraq, Afghanistan, other places uh, around the world. So I agree with you. For the time being, we should make sure that we invest everything necessary in order to uh, train the guard and train the reserve. That's not the place where I want to save money. Um, What I suggest is that uh, winding these wars down overseas will save us Potentially trillions of dollars and require us to do less training to have our garden reserve ready for this very sort of high pitched deployment, uh, schedule. Um, you know, I, I would also, you know, introduce a conversation about, you know, very expensive weapons systems, uh, that I think are probably you know more suited for wars that we were fighting 50 years ago instead of the wars we'll be fighting 50 years uh, from now. So for the time being, I'm with you. We should invest in the the readiness of uh, our guard troops and our reserve troops. Uh, I just think ultimately we you know, need to be drawing down uh, in the places that we've committed those forces to at such a, a high pace. I would argue that uh, high levels of troops in Afghanistan. Iraq, uh, Kuwait, um, are not accruing to the benefit of U.S. national security, Um, we could spend that money better uh, on economic development projects, on democracy promotion in other parts of the world.
2: We're going to have to leave it there. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, as always, thanks for coming on. We hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Lizzie. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, we're going to hear from Belasi Koo, Associate Professor of Political Science at University of Hartford. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpaenthal. We just hit on a lot of topics with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy about issues not only in D.C. but abroad. Joining us with some analysis on Zoom is Bilal Sikou, a Hillier College Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Bilal, welcome back.
3: Hey, good morning, Lucy.
2: There's a lot to unpack there. So, let's start with Haiti and Cuba. You know, what's your take with how Senator Murphy answered how the U.S. should be involved in either place?
3: I mean, I thought they were really good answers um, in the sense that um, they're very measured. Um, The U.S. is not prepared to jump full-blown into either of these particular crises. But I I did find, you know, sort of interesting his comments about Cuba. I think there's a lot of debate about just how crushing these, you know, sixty-plus year, ec- the economic embargo the U.S. has led against Cuba is contributing to some of these problems that the island continues to face economically, and so I think that's, you know, subject to debate. I think, you know, the idea of security assistance and, you know, to uh, Haiti right now, I think is really crucial. Um, as you read about what happened down there, it's still not clear just how high this conspiracy goes that uh, ended up in the president being killed and so i think there's a lot that needs to be done there and certainly investments by the u.s in in haiti would be welcomed by the haitian people
2: Uh, certainly with haiti um, it's a precarious situation it has been for some time there and as the biden administration have to be careful they they want to avoid uh, another flood of, of haitian refugees here
3: and I think that is first and foremost in the, in the mind of uh, Joe Biden and uh, others in Congress, that you know, potential um, challenge, the seas are really rough, lots of people would potentially lose their lives. I mean, we see this kind of movement across the Mediterranean into, into Europe and the, and the problems that it creates there. I think the four years of Trump and the attitudes about immigration certainly suggest that that's just not a headache that the Biden administration wants.
2: we talk about the the sanctions on Cuba for a long time, but also a lot of of financial mismanagement, and then there's a huge drop in tourism because of COVID, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there. But we know in the past, uh, President Obama trying to restore relations to Cuba and that being floundered under President Trump. Are you surprised at all by some of uh, the words that uh, President Biden has used in relation to the protests in Cuba and talking about the the government and the, the need for leadership?
3: I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, U.S. policy has been consistent in the in the broad contours a, a, around Cuba, even though Obama did make some changes. In fact, there, there were changes which actually facilitated the trip that I made to Cuba for a conference. But um, when Trump came in, he reversed those changes, and Biden actually hasn't. Reverse them again, and so I think Biden is, is moving very cautiously about Cuba. I think the whole issue of immigration and the whole you know issue of people moving into the U.S. legally and illegally is something that he is still trying to sort out.
2: Uh, quickly, we talked about the filibuster, uh, Senator Murphy uh, talking about the importance for democracy and uh, making sure that there reform is possible. What did you think about that that part part of the conversation?
3: I thought it was an interesting, you know, conversation. I mean there were really three things that really stood out to me that what the senator talked about. One was obviously his passion about gun violence. I, I read his book earlier this summer. It's a very powerful testament of his own shift on that issue and and the growing importance of it to him the conversation about the reforming of the the filibuster or getting rid of it was also interesting i think his answer really points to some of the problems that the democrats have on the one hand i heard him saying reform the filibuster is something he'd probably be very comfortable with on the other hand, I think he made a strong case for why it needs to be gotten rid of. And so I think that still needs to be sorted out among the Democrats. And his answer really reflected that tension about what exactly to do.
2: Uh, he's, he's certainly made a uh, foreign policy uh, his wheelhouse, uh, so to speak. Uh, do you anticipate Senator Murphy will be running for president one day?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was I was actually surprised by just the depth of his response about um You know, presidential powers, I mean, in in some ways, in many ways, actually, Congress has ceded power to the president, which I think has contributed to this problem. The Patriot Act, we can talk about that. We haven't actually declared war on anyone since World War II. So Congress has been handing over power to the president. Presidential power has been growing over the years, and now Congress wants to take some of that back. And presidents, once they get the power, they seldom ever give it back. And so, you know, in listening to him and I think the broad range of issues from the domestic policy discussion, the foreign policy discussion, um, it will be interesting. I think Senator Murphy is probably someone who has aspirations to be president. I wouldn't be surprised if he's a VP pick uh, sometime really soon, especially if Joe Biden doesn't run for reelection. I think he and Kamala Harris would make a great sort of ticket for, for president on the Democrat side.
2: Nice. Well, we wanted to fit in more callers, so our time with you, Bilal, is short, but that means you have to come back uh, sooner or next time. <laughs>
3: that's that's fine. Thanks a lot for having me on.
2: Bilal Siku, again, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at University of Hartford. Always a pleasure to hear from you. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Test Terrible was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor.